karaoke on the cop. Anyone who had a heart. The parochial joviality of the pre-war football chant began to shift towards the more antagonistic ditties that we know today, at the same time as pop music became prolific in the UK. Nowhere were these shifts more pronounced than in Liverpool. With an estimated 350 bands in the city at the beginning of the 1960s, the banks of the Mersey were fertile grounds from which two phenomena that would dominate English popular culture for the next 50 years would flourish, pop music and football chanting. The 1960s were a golden age for the Liverpool music scene, seeing the development of the city's own brand of music, Mersey Beat, which in turn led to the invasion of British pop music into the US charts. Beat culture saw creativity in the city explode and exported around the world, causing American poet Allen Ginsberg to describe Liverpool as the centre of consciousness of the human universe. The city boasted an incredible 33 UK number one singles through the decade, with over half of these coming in 1963 and 1964, including seven from the Beatles, three from Jerry and the Pacemakers, and two from Cilla Black. Such is the ongoing connection between music and Liverpool, coupled with the unprecedented volume of number one singles to emerge from the city. In 2001, the Guinness Book of Records declared it their city of pop. During this period, it wasn't just the city's bands that were finding success, as their two biggest clubs, Liverpool and Everton, were slugging it out at the top of the first division, claiming a pair of league titles each in the decade. The two clubs' on-field success coming just as Cilla Black and the Beatles were finding international stardom, ensured it was no coincidence that the city's pop music success and football success would come together. Prior to the early 1960s, fans of both Liverpool and Everton were undoubtedly loud, and while Anfield and Goodison Park were both inspiring and intimidating places to watch or play football, neither set of fans had yet adopted an anthem of their own. For Liverpool, this was about to change. The focus of the Anfield's noise, both then and now, was the Spion Cop, located in the southwest corner of the ground, behind the goal to the right of the Players' Tunnel. The Spion Cop takes its name from a hill between Johannesburg and Durban in South Africa, which was the scene of a bloody defeat for the British Army Fusiliers in the Boer War in January 1900. Six years after that defeat, Liverpool constructed an ash and cinder bank for supporters on the Walton Breck Road which Liverpool Echo sports editor Ernest Edwards nicknamed The Cop. Edwards' comments echoed an earlier description of Woolwich Arsenal's Manor Ground, which in 1904 an unnamed local newsman had likened to the silhouette of fans standing on a newly raised bank of earth to soldiers standing atop the hill during the battle. Edwards liked the description and applied it to Liverpool's new mound in homage to the fact that many Liverpudlians had been in the Fusiliers. The visual metaphor was a powerful one, and soon cops were springing up across English football. Over a century later, the cop, as it's now frequently referred to, remains the home end, not just at Anfield, but also at Birmingham City's St Andrews, Leeds United's Ellen Road, Notts County's Meadow Lane, and both major grounds in Sheffield, Wednesday's Hillsborough and United's Bramall Lane. Chesterfield left their cop behind when they deserted Saltergate for the less evocatively named Proax Stadium. Clubs in Europe were inspired too, and Windsor Park in Northern Ireland, En Avant, Guingamp's Stade de Roudrou, and Paris Saint-Germain's Parc de Princes in France, as well as NAC Breda's old Arne de Bixestrata in the Netherlands, all featured a stand known as the Cop. 
the fans who stood on the cop also tended to be the vocal ones. The cop was always a noisy place. People shouted and roared, and there was banter and bad language. In the early 60s, however, the noise changed. The cop began to sing, and the singing made the fans feel good, noted sports historians Andrew Ward and John Williams in their words. In words that echo, the ecstatic ritualistic celebrations Durkheim discovered in the Aborigines experiencing and celebrating the quasi-religious physical and social existence of their clan. The ideas expressed by Wards, Williams and Durkheim, that communal singing could have a powerful and positive effect on human emotions, had long been suspected and it led to a number of scientific studies. One such study, led by the Sydney Dahan Research Centre for Arts and Health in Kent, confirmed the link, finding that the act of singing in a large group had significant psychological benefits from the release of endorphins, as well as physiological ones, including stimulating circulation and improving lung function. Professor Don Stewart, head of public health at Griffiths University in Queensland, noted the importance the study attributed to singing within a group environment in order to fully realise the benefits. He said, if the benefits were physical alone, anyone could get them from singing in the shower, and that's not the case. It's very much about the act of togetherness, the importance of being involved with others. It gives people this strong sense of connectedness and well-being. It seems to be quite a powerful effect. As the cop began to sing, its inhabitants didn't have to look far for inspiration. Local acts such as Scylla Black, Jerry and the Pacemakers, and of course the Beatles, leapt to the top of the UK music charts. Almost immediately, the cop picked up their nationally known tunes as a transferable and nationally recognisable vehicle for expressing local pride. Examples of this fierce identification with local sources of pride can be found across world football. Writer Pete Miles, who has travelled the world watching football from different clubs' versions of the cop, wrote an essay on fan culture in which he describes a number of examples of this in Europe, including at Rottweiss Essen and Athletic Bilbao. The former, who barring a couple of seasons in Bundesliga 2, have bounced around the German regional leagues, repeatedly showcase their city's pride in the mining industry that shaped both the Essen and the Ryder Ruhr Valley. The latter have adopted a Basque players-only rule that has strengthened the links between the club, its city, its region and its people. As a local journalist Jorge Carreto notes, it's a self-imposed limitation that ultimately gives you much more strength because you know you are competing from an inferior position against big clubs who can sign players from anywhere. But you have a motivational pride because of a tradition, a custom that gives you strength to keep trying to better yourself for the club. Initially, through this shift from parochial chance to chance inspired by a location's industrial or cultural output, it took place on Liverpool's cop. Arthur Hopcraft's classic book, The Football Man, captured the moment chanting changed, noting, Rehearsed chants and verses created in Liverpool, where the city character, with its pervading harshness of waterfront life and bitterly combative Irish exile content, was given a sudden flowering of arrogant expression with the simultaneous rise of its pop musicians and both its leading football teams. Author and broadcaster Tim Marshall felt that Liverpool's unique cultural heritage of welcoming immigrants drawn from two prodigiously talented musical nations played its part in ensuring the banks of the Mersey fostered and nourished this growing spiked melodiousness. 
Perhaps it's the Irish and Welsh influence on Liverpool that has helped create both the famous Scouse wit and penchant for singing. Whatever it is, Liverpool supporters put some other top clubs to shame when it comes to chants. Unlike modern chanting, where lines, tunes or short riffs are repurposed and altered, the cops' first venture into chanting took the songs of their city, singing them in their entirety. When BBC's Panorama rocked up at Anfield to document the finale of the 1964 season and watched Liverpool take on Arsenal to clinch the first division title, their cameras captured the cop in full voice. The cop's set list that afternoon included an almost four-minute-long complete rendition of Cilla Black's cover of Anyone Who Had a Heart, released a few months earlier in January 1964. The song was the first UK number one for a solo female artist for almost three years, and a proud cop broadcast her musical cess to the footballing world. While Anyone Who Had a Heart was obviously not about football, the song's message of undying love and frequently broken hearts chimed with the experience of supporting a football club and proved a hit in both record shops and on the terraces. The cop's message is clear. Scylla is Liverpool and we are Scylla. As Scylla's name went global, her fellow Cavern Club graduates, the Beatles, were also well on their way to superstardom. As with Scylla, the cop was quick to latch on to their popular and distinctive sound, covering a succession of Beatles songs soon after they appeared. Only a few weeks after Scylla was knocked off the top of the charts, on a sunny May afternoon described by Panorama's Pafé News-style narrator as a fine scouse occasion, the BBC's cameras and microphones captured the cop follow Anyone Who Had a Heart with a surprisingly tuneful encore of the Beatles hit She Loves You. Panorama's man on the mic, John Morgan, described the scene in front of him as unlike any other football crowd. The music which the crowd sings is the music that Liverpool has sent echoing around the world. They seem mysteriously to be in touch with one another, with the spirit of the Scouse. Along with Scylla and the Beatles, the 60s also saw Anfield adopt an anthem that remains synonymous with the club to this day, You'll Never Walk Alone. The song was written in 1945 by Rogers and Hammerstein as the grand finale to their new musical, Carousel. It is sung by the character Nettie Fowler in a bid to comfort her cousin Julie after her lover, Billy Bigelow, had killed himself in order to avoid capture after a failed robbery. Like Norwich City's On the Ball City before it, the full version of You'll Never Walk Alone is much longer than the now famous chorus, although the full lyrics continue to be sung prior to Liverpool home matches. The first recorded mentions of You'll Never Walk Alone being sung at Anfield coincide with the cover of the song released by local band Jerry and the Pacemakers, which reached number one in the UK charts in October 1963, and remained there for four weeks. However, it's been claimed that the song was sung at Anfield as early as 1958. Jane Hardwick, a grandmother from Staffordshire, recalls starting a rendition of it during an evening match shortly after the Munich air disaster. The then teenage schoolgirl had performed Carousel with her local operatic society, and in 2015 she told The Independent that given the emotions swirling around the football community at the time, it just seemed an appropriate song and I started singing it, and it just caught on. Whoever first introduced it, You'll Never Walk Alone caught the imagination of the cop. Just as Rogers and Hammerstein wrote it, You'll Never Walk Alone was designed to provide comfort in dark times, and in that regard, over time, it has come to be seen as more than just a football chant in Liverpool. As former Liverpool player and manager Kenny Dalgleish told a 2014 BT documentary on the chant, as well as being a football song, 
It has also filled a huge void for people who lost somebody at Hillsborough. It was a motive for many reasons, and football was one of them, but it wasn't the most important one. It covers adversity and sadness, and it covers the success. It covers everything that it needs to cover. With its message of solidarity, support and loyalty, the chant not only caught on with fans at Liverpool, but has also been adopted by Celtic in Scotland, and there are competing claims that Celtic actually sang it first. But given Panorama recorded Liverpool fans singing it almost immediately after Jerry and the Pacemaker singles came out, it's unlikely. It also has a large following with fans of Borussia Dortmund, Mainz, Hoffenheim, FC St Pauli and Kaiserslautern in Germany. Feyenoord, Twenty and Cambuur in the Netherlands and FC Tokyo in Japan all routinely belt out their own versions. However, it is Liverpool with whom you'll never walk alone is most closely associated and such is the affinity between the club and the song, its title featured on the club's crest and is cast in iron atop the famous Shankly Gate to Anfield. Tommy Smith, who played for Liverpool under Shankly, wrote that Jerry Marsden, the Jerry of the Jerry and the Pacemakers, had presented Bill Shankly with a tape recording of the song and recalled that hearing it for the first time on the team bus during a pre-season tour was akin to a religious experience for him. It certainly seemed to live in his memory, and Shankly would go on to pick the song as his final selection for BBC Radio's Desert Island Discs, broadcast on the eve of the 1965 FA Cup final win over Leeds. Shankly later chose to have his ashes interred at Anfield, specifically behind the goal in front of the cop. While it began with Silla, Liverpool were not the only club to sing pop songs verbatim. Premier League rivals Crystal Palace and their fans adopted the Dave Clark Five's only number one single, Glad All Over, which was the song to knock the Beatles' I Want to Hold Your Hand off the top of the UK pop charts in 1964, as their anthem immediately after the band played a concert at Selhurst Park in 1968. Immediately after the concert, the song became a permanent fixture of match shows at the ground, and ultimately led to the Palace squad recording a cover version ahead of the 1990 FA Cup final, which scraped into the UK Top 50. The chant version takes the chorus of the single, retaining the original lyrics, and is sung in a call-and-response style, in which one group of Palace fans will sing the first line, before a second group repeats it back to them, and they come together for the finale. Glad All Over is another pop song which, while not about football, speaks to the experience of being a football fan, in which you know your team will be your team for life, regardless of what happens on the pitch. Plus, just occasionally, they can make you glad all over. Palace's version has inspired additional versions to crop up across Britain, with Blackpool, Rotherham United, Port Vale, Swindon Town and Yeovil Town all adopting it in England, and Partick Thistle and Dunfermline Athletic adopting it in Scotland. Another chant which avoids reference to football, but takes a pop song, and, with a couple of tweaks, speaks instead about the experience of being a fan, is Sheffield United's Greasy Chip Butty song. Originally written in 1974 by American singer-songwriter John Denver as Annie's song, Sheffield United's version uses Denver's tune and structure, but tweaks the experiences named to make it their own. The hyper-local identity of the Greasy Chip Butty song, with its romanticised view of life in the Steel City, 
is said to have originated during United's opening match of the 1985-1986 season, when the Blades fans were heard singing it during their 3-1 away win over Stoke City. Unfortunately, the reason it was rediscovered a decade after Denver released it is unknown. Incidentally, Annie's song would be Denver's only UK number one, just as Glad All Over was the Dave Clark Five's only chart topper. One theory that lurks on internet forums is that it reappeared after an away win over Bournemouth at the end of the previous season, featuring Like a Night Out in Bournemouth as an alternative opening line. Meanwhile, fans of Rotherham claim that they were singing their version long before United. In 2010, there was concern that the greasy chip butty song might be made obsolete after brewery John Smith ceased production of their magnet brew referenced in the second line of the chant. So far, those fears have proven unfounded, and if anything, the devise of Magnet added additional layers of reminiscing and heritage to the proud Sheffield identity expressed in the song. Back on the banks of the Mersey, as well as being a vehicle for local pride and the subsequent positive identity it helped create and sustain among the Liverpool faithful, the appearance of You'll Never Walk Alone on the Terraces was mirrored by a level of on-field football success that prompted another key moment in the evolution of football fandom in Britain. As Liverpool acts dominated the 1964 pop charts, the team won the first division title in front of record crowds, as attendances started to be boosted by away fans who were now able to travel in greater numbers thanks to cheaper public transport provided by the introduction of British Rail's football special trains. The COP, growing in volume, coincided with two league championships in 1964 and again in 1966, with Panorama on hand to imply cause and effect between vocal backing and on-field success, the cop's reputation spread across British football and around the world. The BBC's John Morgan invoked the Duke of Wellington's description of his troops to describe the crowd's effect on the game, quoting the military leader's remarks about his troops, I don't know what they do to the opposition, but my God, they frighten me, adding that the effect on Liverpool's opponents was surely the same when faced with this wall of noise and massed swaying bodies. Ian Callaghan, a member of the first Liverpool team to win at Wembley in the 1965 FA Cup final, echoed those thoughts when he spoke in 2015 about the huge effect the crowd had had on the side. The Beatles, Jerry and the Pacemakers, all that Liverpool sound was there, plus the football coming up, and the combination of the two was just fantastic. Callaghan went on to recall how the crowd had the power to intimidate the opposition through humour giving the example of the cop singing the recent Des O'Connor cover of Careless Hands to Leeds goalkeeper Gary Sprake after he threw the ball into his own net. Half a decade later, non-league Dulwich Hamlet fans have taken advantage of the more intimate surroundings of their Champion Hill home to put a new twist on distracting the opposition goalkeeper. Rather than chanting at him, their most passionate fans, known as the rabble, will loudly read his old Facebook posts back to him. Callaghan is not the only one to specifically mention how the cop and their vocal backing has helped Liverpool sides. Former captain Stephen Gerrard told BT Sport, When you walk out with a Liverpool kit on, you shouldn't need a song to motivate you. But when you'll never walk alone is in full flow on that terrace, there's no better place to be. You're 3-0 down against AC Milan in a Champions League final, and you think your dream is in tatters. You're waiting for the half-time whistle, waiting for a chorus of boos. You've let them down. You've let yourself down. You've been totally played off the park for 45 minutes. And then you hear the chorus of You'll Never Walk Alone, probably the loudest and most emotional rendition I've ever heard as a player. Inspired, 
Liverpool famously recovered after half-time in Istanbul, hauling themselves level at 3-3 before going on to win on penalties. In reaching that final, Liverpool had earlier overcome recently crowned Premier League champions Chelsea in front of an Anfield crowd that was so ferociously vocal that Chelsea captain John Terry left the field in tears and later described the atmosphere that evening as the best he'd ever played in. Liverpool midfielder Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain went out of his way to praise the effect of the cop after an impressive 3-0 win over Manchester City in the quarterfinals of the 2018 Champions League, saying, It was an amazing experience. The best atmosphere I've ever played in. You have to give credit to the fans because it is never nice coming to Anfield and hearing that crowd. I've been on the other end of it and it's not easy. The fans play a massive part. I've never witnessed anything like that. Coming into the stadium for a game which was not a final, it almost set it up to be like a final. It definitely got us going and you could see that if you're the away team and that crowd gets going like that, it's horrible. City are an amazing football team, but they're only human. And you put anyone in a pressure environment in an atmosphere like that and maybe it can disturb them. I wouldn't say to the extent it did because they still played some good stuff and they dominated the ball, but it definitely played a part in the first half. It got us going and it would probably shake anyone up. So you have to give the fans credit for that. Liverpool fan and Guardian writer Sachin Nekrani echoed Oxlade-Chamberlain's thoughts. Liverpool supporters should, in the main, feel chuffed with the team and themselves. This was a collective triumph, one spurred on by the other. Anfield at its best. Kenny Dalglish also expressed the sentiment that winning football matches is a collective effort. It's all about helping each other. It helps when you go onto a pitch to know that your fans are right behind you. It helps when you're struggling on a pitch. It helps when you're winning. One unnamed coach who's managed opposition teams in the Champions League at Anfield reported a similar effect in an interview with The Athletic, explaining, I don't think top players are intimidated by a stadium, but the thing about Anfield is that the momentum of games seems to swing with greater intensity than other places. When the energy is positive, those fans play such a big part in affecting their own players. Perhaps it is something in the character of the people from Liverpool and how Jurgen Klopp has harnessed a bond with his players and supporters. We always found that you could be in complete control of a game at Anfield, but then one seemingly little thing could just ignite the whole stadium and swing a game. All you can do as a coach to protect yourself is design a clear style of play, develop resilience and hope that your players can cope with a tough external pressure. Stats back up this anecdotal evidence. For example, in the 27 Premier League seasons between 1992 and 2019, there were 10,725 Premier League fixtures. A massive 46% of those games featured home wins, compared to just 28% away victories. Within games themselves, a similar effect can be seen with the award of penalty kicks, with numerous studies recording statistically relevant discrepancies in the number of home and away penalties awarded. This is not just noticeable in the number of spot kicks awarded to home and away teams, but at an even more granular level, away teams are awarded fewer penalties in the area located closest to a home team's most vocally supportive end compared to the other end of the same stadium. The COP is equally important to the fans that stood on it as it is to the players that it helped inspire. The experience of standing and singing was summed up by one Liverpool fan interviewed by Warden Williams as somewhere you lose all of your worries. For two hours, it's all that matters. Everything outside is irrelevant, but what you do in that two hours lives with you for the rest of the week. 
you don't leave the cop behind. That comes with you. As the terraces became more Liverpool and Liverpool's cop began to gain a reputation for being boisterous, fun, and crucially credited with being a key part of Liverpool's on-field success, it was naturally enough mimicked by clubs across Britain. Fans who wanted to get together, vocally support their club, and help them to win began to gather on the terraces of clubs across Britain in their own versions of the cop. Each club's vocal area became known as the home end, and it was the appearance of those ends around the country that would go on to shape both future chants and the game itself.